Good evening. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Kevin Bradley, the Library's Senior Curator for Special Collections. And tonight we are talking about the events that led to the first claim for traditional Australian land in Australia. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. Fifty years ago, on the 23rd of August 1966, 200 Aboriginal stockmen of the Gurindji people and their families walked off Wave Hill Pastoral Station, 600 kilometres south of Darwin in the Northern Territory, owned by a British aristocrat, Lord Vesty. These events are recounted in a new book, A Handful of Sand by Charlie Ward. This evening, our distinguished panel will discuss the Wave Hill walk-off, the lives of the people who participated, the impact of the strike on black and white Australians and policymakers. But first, I would like to welcome Professor Mark McKenna, the award-winning historian, biographer of Manning Clark and author of the acclaimed Looking for Blackfellas Point. Please welcome Mark to introduce and launch A Handful of Sand by Charlie Ward. Thanks very much, Kevin, and hello, everyone. It's really wonderful to be here tonight. Um, to launch this wonderful book of Charlie Ward's and um, I think it's going to long stand as the definitive history of uh, the Wave Hill walk-off and its aftermath. So congratulations Charlie and Monash University Publishing have done you proud. Major anniversaries are capable of performing small miracles in the creation of our nation's popular memory. Since the 50th anniversary of the Wave Hill walk-off uh, a few weeks ago, there's been widespread media coverage, which many of you can't have missed, I think, interviews, panel discussions on the ABC, and much reflection on what is undoubtedly the defining image of the Gurindji struggle. Mervyn Bishop's photograph of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam pouring sand into the hands of Vincent Lingiari. A gesture inspired in a spur-of-the-moment decision by Whitlam and Nugget Coombs, and a photo that was actually staged when Bishop, unsatisfied with his first photograph, asked Whitlam and Lingari if they could perform the ritual a second time so that they could get a better shot. We've since invested much in Bishop's second take on history. Although the demographic centre of our country lies in the southeast, the moments that have altered our nation's historical consciousness and resonated in the corridors of power in Canberra have so often come from the north and the centre of the continent. Moments such as Wave Hill and Marbo, which will have its 25th anniversary next year. Bishop's restaged photo has helped us to remember the moment somewhat wishfully, I think. Like the 67 referendum, which has often been misremembered as the moment Aboriginal people gained the vote, Whitlam's handful of sand has been remembered as offering far more to the Gurindji and Indigenous Australia, for that matter, than it actually did at the time. So much so that this photograph, I think, stands as a kind of dream history in which Australia is miraculously returned to Aboriginal people. As Charlie's book shows, Whitlam's handful of sand embodied another reminder, and that was that the terms of the handback 
and the much-vaunted self-determination of the Gurindji people would always remain firmly in the hands of the Australian state. One of the things that makes Charlie's book special is not only that it's an eloquent, perceptive and finely honed narrative history, both the prehistory of the walk-off and what followed, but it's a history written partly from lived experience. What gives the book its power is that behind every sharp observation there's knowledge wrought from experiencing the reality of a community's daily life on the ground. To that everyday experience, Charlie has added years of reading and immersion in the archives. It's impossible to write a book such as this in a short space of time. The ease with which his narrative flows and its countless moments of revelation disguise many years of research and hard work. Charlie has distilled that work into a fine narrative history. His voice doesn't intrude, the judgments are never heavy-handed and he takes us inside the mentalities of the key players on all sides. The book's built on countless um, hours of interviews with those who are involved and the knowledge of his friends and local contacts, especially new generation Gurindji women whose voices had previously been downplayed. Charlie's turned the story of the Gurindji struggle into a page-turner. I couldn't put this book down. It's compelling precisely because the story of the struggle bears both inspiring and tragic similarities to so many Indigenous communities across the country. The author, who came to the Gurindji community in July 2006, full of his late historian father's romantic vision of the bush, one that he tells us was imprinted on his memory in the old folk songs that Russell sang to him as a child, was drawn there by Lingyari's vision of cross-cultural mateship. He wanted to answer a question that had long plagued him. Aboriginal people were absent from his father's Australian legend, but how, he wondered, did they fit into the Australian picture? Charlie was grappling with that question while living with the Gurindji. In so many ways, this clear-sighted, unsparing history is the loss of the son's romantic vision, as much as it constitutes a salutary reminder of Australia's ongoing failings in Indigenous affairs. The story that Charlie tells us is one of high hopes, often smothered by a combination of rapidly expanding bureaucracy, the ever-shifting policy priorities of many governments, the invasion of hundreds of well-intentioned, misled, fly-by-night helpers, as Charlie refers to them, legions of missionary, mercenary or misfit, each with their different agendas and the corrosive impact of global capitalism that came with them and undermined but still could not destroy Gurindji law and culture. Though they preached consultation, Charlie tells us, none of the hundreds of officials the Gurindji dealt with learned the language of the local people. Yet despite grounds for despondency, Charlie refrains from pessimism. In the Gurindji's foibles, he writes, we see our own. And there is, of course, much to be proud much to be proud of. Frank Hardy was right. The Gurindji struggle was a watershed 
in race relations in Australia. The walk-off and the long stand at Waddy Creek, supported as it was by the Communist Party, unionists, Fakatsi, university students, church groups and high-profile activists such as Hardy, Faith Bandler, Fred Hollows, slowly overcame the prejudice of generations. In the early 70s, we have to remember that the mentality of many within inside the government was, in, was extremely antagonistic to any suggestion of, in, of Indigenous land rights. Country Party Minister for the Interior, Peter Nixon, told Federal Parliament in 1970, the government believes that it's wholly wrong to encourage Aborigines to think that because their ancestors have had a long association with a particular piece of land, that they, they should therefore have a right to demand ownership of it. In the years following the Wavehill walk-off, an increasing weight fell on Vincent Lingiari's shoulders as Aboriginal politics changed rapidly around him. In the wake of, of the Gurindji's actions and Whitlam's election came the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, the new policy agenda of self-determination, the Woodward Royal Commission, into Aboriginal land rights, the Tent Embassy and the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which was eventually watered down and passed by the Fraser Government in 76. As for the handback itself in August 75, Charlie's description with, with a keen eye for the foibles of 70s fashion captures the drama of the ceremony beautifully and we're going to hear about that shortly. But I want to remind you of the words that Vincent Lingiari said that day. We often hear Whitlam's words, but what did Lingiari say? The important white men, he said, are giving us this land ceremonially. It belonged to the whites, but today it's in the hands of us Aboriginals all around here. Let us live happily as mates. Let us not make it hard for each other. They will give us cattle they will give us horses and we will be happy. Like so many at the time, Vincent had a profound and simple faith in land rights. If the land belonged to Aboriginal people, then all would be well. But this book cuts through the mythology of the handback. As Charlie explains, for all the handover's appeal, it had merely won the Gurindji the opportunity to compete as pastoralists on a financial playing field levelled somewhat by grants, a mixed blessing at best. And it would take another five years before Whitlam's promise regarding the imminent transfer of their country to freehold title was finally fulfilled. And what is left today of that handful of sand? Vincent Lingiare's dignity, his gentle but firm leadership, and the Gurindji's vision, persistence and cultural integrity have not only survived they've inspired many other Indigenous communities across Australia in their fight for land and greater independence. As Charlie concludes, against all odds, Lingare's legacy lives. I urge you all to read this book. At a time when the fight to recognise Indigenous people in the Australian Constitution languishes and the country waits in vain for a political leader who will do what is required and go out day after day and prioritise Indigenous issues, placing them at the centre of our national political agenda rather than at the margins where they so often reside. 
Charlie wards a handful of sand, offers a rare opportunity to reflect on the course of Indigenous politics and the, and the Gurindji struggle over a 50-year period. It's a major work in Australian history. I'm thrilled to launch it and it has much to teach us. Would you please join me in congratulating Charlie Ward? Thank you, Mark, for launching Charlie's book so wonderfully and sharing with us its delights and um, highlighting its significance. Now, joining us on the stage are Charlie Ward, John Paul Jenke and Brenda Croft. Charlie Ward is a writer and historian based in Darwin. He worked on the Gurindji communities of Kalkaringi and Dagaragu between 2004 and 2006 and then as a researcher with the Stolen Generations Link-Up program in Alice Springs. He is now an oral history interviewer with the National Library of Australia and Charlie's work has appeared in journals including the Griffith Review, Mianjin and Southerly. A Handful of Sand is his first book. John Paul Janke is the Director, Community and Public Relations, Communications and Engagement at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. A descendant of both Merriam Murr and Wathafi peoples, John Paul has worked as a journalist in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs for nearly three decades. His long list of professional achievements includes working for ATSIC, the Sydney Olympics and the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. He's a member of the National NADOC Committee and a director of the Australian Indigenous Centre. And Brenda Croft is a senior research fellow at the College of Fine Arts at the University of New South Wales. A member of the Gurindji, Malgnan, Mudpara and Balanara peoples from Northern Territory of Australia, Brenda was a founding member of Bumali Aboriginal Artists Cooperative. She has been involved in contemporary arts and the cultural sector for nearly 30 years. She has worked as a curator in many galleries and lectured across Australia, um, the country and overseas. Would you welcome them to the stage, please? Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. My role is quite simple. It's to uh, try and flesh out as much about the book as possible in quite a short time. So we've only got about 30 to 35 minutes, so it's going to be quite quick. But before we start, I too would like to acknowledge uh, traditional owners of this country that we're on tonight, the Ngunnawal and Nandri people, and I acknowledge their elders past and present. Um, thanks, Mark, for the opening. Uh, like yourself, the book is absolutely enthralling. Um, and a wonderful narrative on such a significant event. Um, we're going to show some slides uh, throughout this presentation as a way of uh, jogging some of the memories and some of the stories between these two people. Um, I'd like to probably start at the very beginning and um, get some narrative about where we are, uh, where we are with the Gurindji people. Um, this is the location of obviously Dagaragu and Kalkaringi, um, but Brenda or Charlie, maybe give us some historical context about Gurindji people. Brenda, if I could start with you. Well, as I said before we came inside, um, and, and Charlie and I talked about this at, at great length, I'm here as a person of Gurindji heritage, but I'm certainly not the Gurindji spokesperson, and I've, I've always made that really clear with the work that I do. Um, having said that, it's a great honour to be part of, of this panel, and I too pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this region. 
and have um, a long-standing um, involvement with here with our parents who worked in Department of Aboriginal Affairs and in the early days, um, and John Paul and I were talking about that earlier. Um, as someone of Gurindji heritage on my dad's side, uh, it was just, for me growing up, it was always there. Um, and my dad was a member of the Stolen Generations, and but he had always known that he was um, a Gurindji in Mutbara, we, and the Mullion uh, was confirmed when um, I went up there uh, later on as a, a young adult. I've been going back home for about 25 years and I guess in much the same way as that event, that seminal event in the late 60s drew Charlie up there, it was always just something there in my, in my DNA as someone connected from that place but wondering always what, what actually, what was it about and, um, you know, it was, I've come across many people in, in my work throughout the, uh, the country who've said to me, oh, the, you know, the very first language group I ever heard of was Gurindji because of, of that um, event that happened in the 60s and right through to the, till 75. And I moved down to Canberra in 75 and um, one of my earliest memories of being here was standing on the steps of Parliament House the night that Whitlam had gotten thrown out. My parents um, took us kids there because they were extremely angry as were so many other people and so Whitlam was also someone who featured strongly in, in my childhood memories and those days were that period um, where he did that handback. There was such optimism I think and not just in relation to Indigenous affairs but in so many areas, you know, for women, um, for education, you just you really felt that there was a, a, a change had come, and in the intervening decades, um, we've seen all of that whittled away. And for me, the revelation with your book, Charlie, again, as um, um, Mark said, it it was pretty impossible to put it down. So I would kind of fall, and you know I'd fall asleep reading. <laughs> A chapter a night, um, just to kind of get get through it, and and I have to say, I ended up feeling such despair. I got angrier no. and angrier as I went along because mm. you have it's so revelatory in the way that you've unravelled all the kind of the Machiavellian machi the machinations that went on behind the scenes to whittle away that gesture. Um, and on the other hand, having just come back from the 50th anniversary of the walk-off, where it is, it, for me, it's kind of a bittersweet thing watching what goes on up there. I, I don't consider myself an insider. I haven't grown up in the community. I've been going back regularly for 25 years. My dad's buried up there. Um, I've got close connections with family, but I'm not an outsider either. I'm I'm kind of like an in-betweener in a way. And, and so perhaps that allows me to be a bit of a, a cool observer and, and looking at, you know, well, what has actually happened? For me personally, I find it really hard to to call the annual event Freedom Day because I don't see... I'm free to come and go. I'm a middle-class black fella, you know. I have the op options to be able to come and go as I like based on research grants that I have, etc. But the lack of opportunities are glaring up there for young people and having spent the last five years 
um, working quite closely with family and community, interviewing them about, in a very different way to Charlie, I think, um, I'm interested in where people see home and how, how do people in that community see the, the walk-off and, um, and the track and that, and that event. And um, so I've been interviewing a range of people from, from elders through to very young people about what, what they want there. And there aren't, you know, I don't have answers. Um, I think it's an ongoing story, and you know it, it does. Ha it is double-edged for me all the time. There, there's great pride coming from there, um, but there's also great sadness. I think for what what those old people wanted, yeah. and what hasn't happened. Mm. All right, Charlie. Your, your, your first part of your your book talks about uh, Gurindji and and uh, maps sort of Gurindji and the. Uh, the historical context. Yeah. Are you able to tell us a bit more about um, looking at some of these photos? Uh, take us to Gurindji country. Um, yeah. A lot of us here in Canberra have never been out there and probably will never go out to Dagaragu or Kalkaringi and feel the red dirt in our sand or wash our feet in the, uh, the river. I think Brenda and, and I might still have some in our <laughs> pockets. We were in the caravan park in Kalkaringi a couple of weeks ago. Um, the first time I went there I was surprised I suppose I, I knew you know where I was going and I thought it was sort of heading towards the desert but it's um it's it, it yeah it's, it's not sort like of, Alice Springs is it? it's not at all like Alice it's it's sort of just on the northern edge of the the mm. Tanami and it's beautiful like there's you know really big big uh river system the headwaters of the Victoria River and freshwater crocodiles pandanus there's there's permanent springs um huge skies i always think of those really really big skies and it's remote I, uh, you know you yeah. try and explain to people there's remote and there's remote and i kind of always laughed with that you know the idea that northeast arnhem land with the garama festival there's an airport there you know Qantas flies in every day to get to kalkaringi unless you charter a plane it's a it's a 10 hour drive eight to you can do it in eight, but it's <laughs> it's about a ten-hour drive. It is remote. It's and really remote. There's probably five driveways on, on that sort of you know six hours from Catherine. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, very very varied, beautiful country. Um, there's a lot of rocky mesas, spinifex, mm. black soil plains, um, bush turkeys, and I guess there's, you know there's been cattle there for a hundred and. 30 years or something, so that's also had an impact. And Massive impact mm. in terms of waterholes being affected, erosion, uh, vegetation. You know, you mm. can see with what the work that mm. the Gurindji Rangers have been doing with securing some of the waterholes, how quickly they can come back to life, but there's been massive degradation there, I think, because of cattle. Yeah, yep. A lot of feral weeds. Uh, Donkeys. And now cane toads as well. <laughs> Massive amount of cane toads. <laughs> Um, the opening sentence of your book talks about uh, Vincent Lignari and it, it has a simple but very strong comment um, which starts, without Vincent Lignari, work on Vesti's Wave Hill Station would have ceased. It's quite a powerful statement. Um, are you able to tell us a bit more, and starting with Charlie, um, a bit more about the man Vincent Lignari? Yeah, well, by all accounts, he was a remarkable man. Um, the, the numerous people that I've spoken to who, who knew him um, and his descendants, uh, I mean, I, th I think we all want a powerful leader and we tend to sort of build individuals up um, and that certainly happens with 
Vincent and his role with, with the Gwinji people, but it, it is warranted as well because he, he was a remarkable individual and the, the, when people met him, they were affected by him. Um, one, one woman described it to me as uh, the fact he, he was so, he, he was to be respected because he was so respectful. You know, so he, there wasn't any um, hubris or, or sort of pride. I, I mean, I don't think he built himself up uh, or saw himself in grand terms, but uh, he, he sort of earned that um, f or in, engendered it in, in other people. Um, and I, I think a man who's passed away now, uh, Billy Bunter, um, kind of impressed on, on me that... that fact, the way that, that Vincent uh, performed sort of numerous roles in, in the world of Wave Hill Station. And, I mean, he, you know, he was a ceremonial um, leader. So he, he was a senior lawman. Yeah. But he, he, was, he was a statesman. I mean, I, I, from all accounts, I didn't meet him. Uh, he died in 1988 and I first went out in 91. But everything you read about him, his statesmanship, so there's not... It isn't just that one thing. He, and we know those old school people in our communities. You know, we know those old men and women who are gentle men and gentle women as well as they just have gravitas. You know, you you want to learn from them. You want to sit and listen to them. They're not loud. They're not brash. They, they you know, there's not huge amounts of words all the time. That's the sense I have of him, and, I, and what I love about your book too is how you flesh out some of the other people involved in that walk-off, because he worked with other people as well, and I love yeah. being able to get a sense of them as people. I find that it's a tricky one, you know, because I, you know, too want to want to sort of have a sense of people's character, you know, and what what they were like, but it's it's hard to flesh that out, you know. I can only sort of go on what they'd said and, and the, the, the way that they interacted and whatnot. But I'm sure that it, it's true, you know, that, I mean, in a few cases, Vincent probably had his, his perspective and wanted to take people in a certain direction, but there was always the to and fro and the consultation. But I like the tension that's, op that's obviously apparent there as well. You know, there were mm. people of those senior um, men in particular who didn't always agree with his way and you know the 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 impact of christianity up there mm. and how that that was at odds with um cultural law you know and, and you get you mm. get a sense of that it isn't just everybody has the one way of thinking i mean there's a particular aim that people have but there are quite different opinions about how you get to to that yeah i think the, and, the, and the book describes the mobilization of the 200 people, which are stockmen and families and children, and on that uh, epic journey. And I think the ability for, able for Vincent and leaders to coordinate that and also to mobilise those people is the strength of um, those leaders in the community. Um, when you were doing the research for the book and you did a lot of interviews uh, with individuals on sort of both sides of the spectrum, what was their uh, differing views about uh, Linyari? Well, I think, I mean, it, it was fairly united i mean i guess i guess the big um point of difference would be that that generally some of the people you know in the cattle industry might have thought and said to me uh well it, it wasn't vincent you know it was the 
Frank Hardy, it was the communists, it, you know, it was people pulling the strings and Dexter Daniels, that's mm. why Lingiari led people to walk off. Um, but I'd say that, you know, that, that point of view is a minority and I think that increasingly that perspective has kind of been pushed to the margins because there's been a lot of uh, other work and, and Gurindji oral history has, has emerged mm. since that time, which has really made it quite clear that it was a, a long-held desire and that people were, were just waiting for the right time mm. to, to do it. Uh, when, and that was when support became available. Um, so the, the first part of the book is, is, is titled A Quest for Justice, and it covers quite an expansive period from 1930 to about 1972. Um, a lot of people down south just saw it as a quest for land rights, mm. but it was a quest for uh, something much bigger. Um, do you want to outline what that quest for justice was and the bigger picture stuff that the Gurindji were after? I think there was a vision of an autonomous community. Um, people wanted equality, you know, within in the region. Uh, they wanted to operate on equal terms um, with the within the cattle industry. Um, and, and the stuff that I find interesting, which is probably less talked about than the cattle business and, and the school that they wanted, is, is a broader vision which was about rebalancing the, the cultural uh, flow, I suppose, of you know, the, the great sort of accommodation that, that they'd had to make in terms of um, incorporating the the cattle industry and, and the agenda of Europeans into their country and into their lives. And, and there's a few comments where Lingiari and others talks about, okay, now it's time for a, a rebalancing. You know, now it's time for non-Indigenous Australia to learn about our, our language, our culture, and how we do things. And I think that, I think that's part of that that quote that we heard before, when Lingiari says we, we want to be mates now, there, there was a vision of equality. And, and you know, they took practical steps to um, realise that through trying to teach Europeans Gurindji language um, and, you know, create this sort of cultural flow between mm -hmm. the two groups. But also what comes to me from, from the book is to do it on their terms. It, doesn't, it didn't have to be the same. It wasn't about trying to be the same. And it was also about being left alone, being able to be left alone on country. This is our country. We want to do what we want to do here, the way we want to do it. And the, what you also get from that is, you know, all the outside forces that were kind of, well, you have to do it a certain way. Yeah. If you want to get funding to do it this way, it has to be... So that's what I mean by the, the undermining. And, I mean, that still operates the way there's the two communities with Dagaragu and Kalkaringi. For me, it was always trying to understand the differences between... The, how did those two communities operate with each other? And I love how that is really clear in this book. Mm. And it is still so... so deep, deeply rooted there when you're talking to people over at Dagaragu, the frustration they feel with all the infrastructure being put into Kalkarangi still. You know, it's it's dedicated, it's a dedicated hub town. That's where all the, the money goes in, you know. So Dagaraga, from my observation, has been allowed through kind of a de facto um, uh, way of kind of not 
doing anything there. It's to allow it to fall into disrepair. So yeah. it will not it will not survive, you know. Yeah. And there is still the same things that are being that were being said by those elders back then are being said by today. Yeah. TOs there today. Yeah. Charlie, you talk about a, the vision of setting up an autonomous community. And the central hub of that autonomous community was uh, obviously the cattle and the cattle operations. Can you take us through the, the vision of setting up that cattle operation and, and then the subsequent uh, problems that they encountered? Um, and maybe then how that vision sort of subsided a bit towards the end. Well, it's a, a long um, period. It was uh, 1970, I think, that the Maramala Cattle Company was incorporated um, with the help of activists, students and unionists. Um, the, the men, I mean, it was pretty gendered, the men, the men had amazing skills, you know, that they'd built up over decades working in the cattle industry and they, they had a, a vision of um, supporting themselves through running cattle and providing jobs for the younger people um, and, yeah, so a financial operation. Um, and that, of course, was pretty problematic to begin with because they didn't have land in a legally recognised sense. So uh, it was several years of sort of false starts and uh, buying cattle and then trying to get a, a, a special purpose lease um, from the, the command government so that they could legally have a few cattle to run. Um, and, of course, then Whitlam um, came in and there was more money and the uh, excision from Vesti's Wavehill Station happened, so quite a big area of land, and the consultants who were involved at the time uh, were of the opinion that, that a, a viable cattle station could operate on that piece of land that the old people had named as theirs and what they wanted to reclaim. Um, I guess the interesting question is to what degree did that financially viable vision and, and you know, this sort of um, mainstream economic um, perspective of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and the consultancies groups, uh, did that match what the, the elders envisaged? And I think that there was a sort of a, a mismatch going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course with, with the funding that they were successful in getting, there were all sorts of conditions which involved massive amounts of fencing and building up infrastructure and bores and all the rest of it over the whole property. Um, so huge, huge labour demand and uh, I think life was, I mean... The, it the, was hard. The pastoral economy had changed and there were more choices for young people at Dagaragu than in earlier times, so you know, there was more diversity about what people wanted to do and funding would sort of go up and down like that, so the number of people they could employ um, would vary a lot and that, you know, wasn't ideal for the young stockman. Um, and then you had BTEC, the um, brucellosis and tubercul tuberculosis eradication campaign. And that was, a, I'd never heard of it, to be honest, but that had a massive impact on the cattle industry and basically was sort of used as a, 
a wedge to kind of force the whole industry into a modern, mechanised, um, much more closely managed operations. Mm. I mean, yeah. But, it, you know, in the end, it also impacted on any on all of the Aboriginal-owned stations, you know, that I, that's the sense that I was getting from reading the book. And mm-hmm. I remember, uh, you know, hearing about that and talking with, you know, Brian Manning. We, we both were lucky enough to interview him on different occasions for different things and his frustration at that you know because he you had these incredible people who put in so much time supporting Gurindji and he was also a great statesman as far as I'm concerned the late Brian Manning and um, never uh, you know was as beloved as as Whitlam was by people down in community and he died at the end of 2013 his frustration at seeing Everything was just always just out of reach, you know. Uh, okay, we've done this, and now there's another thing that you have to jump through the hoops of. What? And yeah. so when they finally did get their cattle, then there was the decision to k- destroy them all, yeah. and so that was wiped out their entire herd. And people are still ta- the old people up there are still talking about that. You know, you still talk to some of those those elders now, and they're still going on that. We just need to get cattle back here and get that station back up mm. without realising that moment has passed, yeah. you know, to be able to do that. Well, we'll, we'll talk about the, the struggles between the community and government and the, past, uh, the cattle industry in a minute. Um, obviously, with the, the momentum building from the walk-off and the need to gain mainstream uh, support and build a momentum nationally, Vincent and the elders undertook a a lot of travels to metropolitan areas and they formed a lot of strong partnerships um, with organisations. Um, how important was it for the Gurindji to build that mainstream support um, in terms of garnishing support for both their, their strike but also the bigger picture of what they wanted to achieve? I think those alliances were really key in the early years after the walk-off. Um, because there was there was no other support. I mean, there was the question: how how are people going to live? How are they going to feed themselves? Let alone how are they going to build up a community? Um, so it was through the the union movement initially, and and supporters in in Darwin, and that expanded, I guess, um, in the late 1960s, and and people were kind of I guess it was part of a broader movement, as Brenda was saying earlier. You know, there was just a, a groundswell of um, support for Aboriginal rights, equality. I mean, gender, race issues were kind of becoming. Well, there were things changing globally. You know, so it was really on the wave of all of that. It, be, it yeah. became all of those things. You had the referendum the following year. You had into the 70s, you know, with the 10 embassy being set up and the, and looking at what was happening in the States in terms of black power, you know, young activists here who were, OK, we're, we're not going to wait f- for these things anymore. Mm. And this this absolutely was part of that. You look at the Save the Gurindji campaign in 1970 when, thing, when, you know, interest had waned and sort of fallen off the radar a bit. If it wasn't for outside people black and white, um, who mm. did work alongside mm. each other and kept that going, kept that happening. It, there's no way that the community would have been able to continue, I think, up there. And you didn't have social media. You yeah. couldn't just kind of link into mm. something. It was... You had to it had to be on the ground. 
there, and I think it's coming back to where you, you're talking about uh, Lignari being a statesman and having the, the, the sort of the gravitas to be able to engage with uh, a wider audience um, for the causes back you know, thousands of miles away, back in the centre of Australia. Um, the partnerships they formed, which you illustrate in the book, uh, as you mentioned, uh, unions and individuals, universities, Aboriginal organisations, um, they, through the unions, obviously came into contact with the Communist Party. And there's two wonderful photos in your uh, book, which I immediately caught my eye because they're courtesy of ASIO. <laughs> Charlie, would you, do you want to expand how you came across these photos in the first instance <laughs> and, and maybe why ASIO were looking at uh, the Gurindji during this period? Well, I mean, I'm sure most people here know ASIO was interested in anyone with long hair back then. Um, uh, I think com there were active communists who were associated, who were supportive um, of, you know, I mean, Brian Manning, Terry Robinson, uh, who helped to form the NT Council of Aboriginal Rights. Frank Hardy, of course, came into the picture. He'd been a long traveller with the Communist Party. Um, Hannah. Yep, even later, the 19, early 70s. Hannah Middleton, you know, um, so, and, and the, all the unions had a huge CPA membership, so that was your support base. And, and I mean, I, so, I mean, there's one quote in the book from the director of ASIO saying it looks as if uh, the Aboriginal, Aboriginal issues and the um, Vietnam War are going to keep us busy in the next year. Um, <laughs> Why <laughs> Aboriginal issues were a national security threat, I'm not clear, but... Well, that hasn't changed, has yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but certainly by the early... S well, OK, so, so I've seen um, material from ASIO which was produced by the media, so, so people who would, would go up there as part of a documentary team or a news reporting team whether they were employed by ASIO or just happy to give their their material over to ASIO. Um, that's certainly in the, in the ASIO files now. Um, and the special branch of the Northern Territory Police. So you can sort of see this from numerous angles. So there's mentions, you know, in the police journals from the, the police at Wave Hill, we'll say, you know, April uh, 3rd, special branch visit, um, ASIO accompanying. Um, uh, I've interviewed some of those police uh, men and, and their wives and, uh, and then there's you know, the avenue of making a request here at the National Archives in Canberra and uh, under, you know, looking, looking up some of the names of, of people like Hannah um, and others who were present at Waddy Creek at the time and that also turns up the sort of breadth of uh, what ASIO was up to on the ground up there. They must have really stood out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a big community. It wasn't, no, that's right. Um, and I, I've tried to convey that in the book that, that people felt like they were being watched. Because they were. <laughs> Because they, they were, because they yeah. were, you know. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching. <laughs> That's right. Sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> the policeman had come out and yeah. drive around and have a good look and yeah. was reporting back to, to Darwin and 
the administration. Yeah. And as, as part of the, the sort of the, the lobbying and the, the, the need to grow uh, greater support base, in the late 60s, um, Vincent uh, teamed up with uh, Gullaroy Unipingan um, to record this uh, song, The Gurindji Blues, with Ted Egan. Do you want to tell us a bit about this song? Because your book goes into some great detail about how this song came about and the, the need for this song. Well, Ted Egan... Um, Ted Egan had been in the Northern Territory since 1949, I think, and he was a, he'd worked in the Aboriginal communities as, as a teacher, he'd worked as a welfare branch officer. By the late 1960s, he'd been employed by Nugget Coombs, Barry Dexter and Bill Stanner as part of the Council of Aboriginal Affairs. So they had quite a progressive agenda um, in contrast to the... Northern Territory Administration and the Welfare Branch, etc. And Ted is an amazing balladeer and folk singer and he was incensed by the announcement of Peter, the Minister Peter Nixon um, about yeah, refusing to, to accommodate any recognition of Gurindji rights yeah. to land, etc, etc. If Gurindji want land, they have to buy it. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, got to him and, and you know, I think yeah, in a moment of inspiration he, he wrote this brilliant song called Gurindji Blues and asked, I think he asked Vincent to, to sing it um, and Galleroy Unipinga was there as, as well, I don't, don't know what he was planning but Vincent couldn't quite make the, the high notes so um, yeah. Galleroy did, did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. And Vincent, uh, on the actual record, Vincent... Uh, uh, does the introduction uh, in traditional language and in English. And My name is Vincent Lindyari, came from Tagoragu, Wadi Creek, Tyson. Yalangulung Unayana, Wadi Creek Mulung, Unayani, Mulangura, Unayani, Unayani, Jaragabko, Jaragani, Kariyao, Mulangura, Unayana Unamana Jaragab. That means that I came down here, the household is following here, but the land right. Mm. What I got started from my old father or grandpa, that land belonged to me, belonged to Aboriginal men before the horse and the cattle come over on that land, where I'm sitting now. Well, that's what I been keep keep it on my mind. Now, I still got it on my mind. That's, a lo that's all the word I can tell you. So, Charlie, having uh, gone through the process, the, the mm. decade long of researching for this book, uh, what does it feel like when you hear that powerful voice? What do you, what do you hear when you, feel you hear that powerful voice? Oh, it's special. Um, I've been... Well, actually... Uh, helped to, to organise a meeting up in Kalkaringi a couple of months ago and we played a, an interview with, which Vincent had done in the late 70s with Ted Egan actually and it has sort of been lost in the archives in Darwin for a long time and so I mean I think when, when people hear his voice especially up mm. there um, you know it's sort of you can feel the sort of energy drop because um, his legacy has, I guess, been, you know, become contested 
a little bit in, in some ways, and Kalkringi and Dagaragu. And for me personally, uh, I, you know, I think he was an amazing, amazing individual. Mm. And there's a, a great, um, you might have seen it on NITV, there's a, a sort of piece where the journalist is going around and asking people, here's the photo of Whitlam, and you know, do you know who this is? And they, you know, it's Marbo, um, <laughs> Nelson Mandela, <laughs> you know, Malcolm X. No, but I think, I think. Um, what in the community or just in no, the broader community? Is, okay, yeah, yeah, streets of yeah. Sydney <laughs> kind of thing. And Brenda, what, um, what about you? What do you, what do you feel when you? Well, I, I love that. Um, I, I've used that as part of. That's been the kind of basis for a PhD project I'm working on called Still In My Mind, and you heard him say that country, I still got it on my mind. And it is that thing about where where is it, when you hear his voice, and it's also hearing the voice of people like Dexter Daniels, mm. you know, looking at, um, being at the National Film and Sound Archives uh, a few years back doing an Indigenous fellowship there, I was lucky to be able to sit and look through all that old footage and listen to a lot of that audio, and going back to the 30s as well, footage, silent footage of people from out at Wave Hill and the broader Victoria River region, it's really moving. It, you, you know, you, you feel a sense, I get really teary when I hear his voice because I also know by the time he passed away, the level of despair and frustration that I've heard from lots of different people, not just from what's revealed in your book, but people who worked at the Central Land Council who fought for... Because it took so long for that land handback to be actually ratified. You know, it was years and years and years. And we've seen those kinds of tactics, the stalling tactics in a way, like with the stol stolen generations. You know, it's like waiting for people to pass away, to wear them down. And mm. you can you can hear that and, and see that by the time he, he died as an old man. But hearing his voice, the the sense of the sense of determination. You know, we're not giving up. We will not leave. Where are they going to go? Mm. I mean, this is where we're from. And one of the things I've been doing is walking the actual walk-off track with family members to try and just get a sense of what it must have been like walking from that place to mm. the promised land yeah, in is, many yeah. ways, you know? That's how they saw it. This is... And there were those Christian analogies because he saw himself as a, a Christian. He saw that two-way way of operating. And that caused friction with people in community who didn't want to follow that. Um, and it, it does become a handful of dust, like the, yeah. the mm. lady who walked down the stairs and thought she was coming to see <laughs> Robert Foster. <laughs> the go-betweens launch. Yeah. Um, the book builds uh, wonderfully up to this day, um, August 16, 1975, and this is the most iconic photo of the day, but um, you've got some wonderful anecdotes of the whole day. Um, and I think it's, it's described in the book as the drama and accidental comedy of the day. And there's this wonderful story um, told by uh, Jeff Elms, who was the Central Land Council lawyer. And, in the, and you, you talk about this in the book where you say, Whitlam flew up on his BAC 111 jet. The airstrip wasn't quite long enough for it. And Jeff laughs. I remember when it landed, there were all these dignitaries waiting out there for golf. But he didn't stop in time and it went hurtling into the fence. 
It was a pretty spectacular start of the day's events. But this photo is the iconic photo and the one that everyone sees. Um, the story of, of Whitlam pouring hand in, uh, sand into the hand, um, you tell the story in your book of actually uh, Nugget Coombs suggesting to do this event to, um, uh, to make yeah. the day. Can you outline a bit more about uh, that story? I've only only been able to go off the off Nugget Coombs' own account. Um, I think it's in his book Kalinma, and he he relays flying up there for this this ceremony, which was before it happened was going to be a big deal from the government's point of view. You know, they wanted it to be a symbolic event. They wanted it to signify Aboriginal land rights and you know a new age beginning. And, um, and as we've heard, that that was successful. You know that um, that image has been sort of melded onto the actual day. Um, but yeah, so so Nugget is flying up in the plane with with Whitlam, and he says to Goff uh, a story that he's heard from Bill Stanner, which was about the Wurundjeri people um, having doing using that sort of ceremonial transfer. Uh, with John Batman yeah. in the 1830s. 1835, yeah. 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 But isn't, wasn't it also based on an even more ancient thing? Where Tell me if I got this wrong. It's, it, it is about actual conveyancing. It is a legal transaction, but from ancient times, the, the idea of one... In the European tradition yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I didn't know about either, but that's right, that's right. It was, you know, you'd... you'd the, the bit of land that was going to be transferred, you might take a branch off a tree or a stone or something, and that was used as a sort of symbol of, you know, to represent the actual transfer of the land. And then in April 2010, you, you interviewed Seth and Dawn Watts in Darwin, who gave you a great story about uh, this actual handover. Um, and Seth Watts was a Vesti pastoral inspector and his wife Dawn, and you interviewed them about how uh, they remembered the day, and this was their this was their response to you. Uh, Seth says, "I was standing quite close to Vincent, and Goff gave him a handful of dirt <laughs> symbolically, and the old bloke sort of let it drift out of his hand." Then Dawn pipes in and says, "He didn't know what to do with it," and Seth goes, "Poor old bugger, he put it behind his back," and and Dawn responds. They could have given him a little box. <laughs> um, oh, very cute, those two. So y your interviews are obviously uh, expand this whole day to, to be on this actual event. Um, people's connection with this event. How, how did it? How did you feel people were reconnecting to this event? Well, well after you know 1970s. I think. I mean, people. Everybody who who I've spoken to who was there makes a point of letting you know, you know, even if they didn't have any kind of ongoing connection with the Gringy struggle or or that, that area even, um, you know, because it's it's so well recognised, you know, they wanna they wanna put their their bit in that they were there and and there are a whole lot of different interesting perspectives on, on what happened. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've uh, we've probably got time just for two more uh, questions. Um, Maybe talk about this photo. Uh, this is one of the sort of other photos you don't tend to see, but um, maybe tell us a story of this. So Rob Rob Wesley Smith, who's uh, 
very much alive and kicking and still up in <laughs> Darwin. Um, he took this this shot and he, I think, I think he actually he bought pro- the champagne. I think he provided the yeah. champers, yeah, um, and yeah, gave, gave it to Vincent and and Goff to celebrate. This is in the moments after the transfer of the of the title deeds, and. Um, Goff took took the bottle and, as Wes said, poured it down his copious gullet. <laughs> it's sort of, as you can see, Vincent's a bit bewildered. I think, by what's, well, what's he didn't going drink. On. He, he'd given up the. He'd given up well, the drink. He yeah. didn't yeah. drink, so yeah. this is kind of weird. And it would have been warm as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. But I'll tell you a story yeah. from somebody else who was up there, Tanya McConville. We interviewed. I interviewed her for something else, and she encapsulated it. Amazingly, she said, you know, here we were at Daigaragu and there was no toilets or anything like that and this crew comes in because Whitlam's coming and we get, there's electric lights go up and the road's yeah. graded and long drop toilets are dug yeah. and we think, fantastic, fantastic, we've got, finally got, you know, toilets and showers and I know in your book people were also building them and she said, and then Whitlam came in, there's all the dignitaries that did this, they all left the lights were taken mm. down, the long drops were dug in, filled in, and she turned, and I'm going to swear here, she says, we weren't even allowed to keep Whitlam shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, but she was crying, she was actually so angry. There was this, and I think that's a real summing up in many ways of, of the, the you know, the, 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 the facade. Yeah. It's like the Olympics, yeah. you know, you build these great things that happen for a short space of time and then the lights dim and the people who live there have to carry on with it. Amazing. Um, One more beautiful story that you've uncovered is, so they hand back the deeds, Whitlam gives the deeds to Lignari (laughs) and Lignari gives the the actual paper documents to the the, uh, lawyers, uh, to a gentleman by the name of uh, Jeff Er Eames. Eames. Yeah. And you've, you've interviewed Jeff Eames, and you, you say in your book, amongst such, such ex- excitement, the Gurindji leader, leader gave the new title deeds to his lawyer, Jeff Eames, for safekeeping. With enthusiastic residents wanting to examine the documents, Eames lost them in the crowd. <laughs> At that point, he was approached by Whitlam, announcing there had been a request for <laughs> photographs of the black and white statesman holding the parchment. This obviously might be Mervyn Bishop's second yeah. photo. When Eames replied meekly that he didn't know where they were, Whitlam's response was quintessential. What? It took them 200 years to get their land back and you've lost it in 10 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) And you go on to say, look, the deeds were located, all stained with dirt and passed through so many, many hands. But to me that shows, you know, your in-depth research over decades to, Mm. to sort of untell these beautiful stories... And I, I, in preparation for tonight, I, I jumped on uh, your blog where you, you penned this beautiful sort of concluding statement to your book where you said, I've interviewed from RSL, the RSL club in Broome to a bakery in Geelong, from Perth to the Daintree. I destroyed my engine near Roper Bar in the Northern Territory and wound my, wound my way around fire and flood hunting old cattlemen. <laughs> I've turned up in the archives, in, I've turned the archives in Darwin upside down and discovered unopened files. It's true what they say, year after year, I sat at my keyboard and I bled. <laughs> so it's a beautiful way, I think, to sum up uh, the concluding uh, part of the story, but I think in conclusion, is there any 
uh, outstanding anecdote or story that you've uh, unravelled in your in your journey, your ten year journey, that you'd like to share with us? Oh, that w that one with I mean that was a, a great example of what you know why I love oral history because just one of Goff's jokes that might have been lost forever, but you know we were lucky to get that one. Um, do you want to? No, it's a question for me. Yeah, isn't it? I was yeah. wondering if you yeah. could talk for a while, Brenda, while I thought of something. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying, Charlie? <laughs> well, then, Brenda, maybe while Charlie's thinking, um, <laughs> we might put some thinking music on. Uh, what is left? What What's left for Gurindji? What is, what's uh, Linyari's legacy for Gurindji Mob now? Well, I can't speak on behalf of his family, and I'd never do that. But you can see how incredibly proud they are of how he led that action and that was evident at the 50th with different family members getting up to speak. The legacy, I think there's so much that has to be addressed in this country and you know every day we can see something that is looking at how Indigenous people are still so far behind the eight ball and today's example was two former Prime Ministers saying that there is no way they would ever support a treaty in this country. Or a report in yesterday's paper that the majority of land held by overseas interests still is British. Yeah. <laughs> um, or a couple of months ago that the two of the largest stations in that area up there, Inverway and Riverin, were just acquired by Gina Reinhart. So we have the new version of besties, you know. So it, it, we're, we're 50 years on, but how little has changed? And there are still limited opportunities. And what, what are we going to do to address that? How am I going to address that? What can I do to address that? Because that's all of our responsibility um, up there. So it's a complex place. It always feels like dog years when you're up there. A week feels like a year. Um, what it's like for people on the ground. And people come and go too. People come and go to different places. And But that's that's the touchstone, is that, that defining action of bringing the birth of national land rights um, to this country. So people are incredibly proud of that. But then looking at that as beyond what the legend yeah. is... And considering it in light of what the reality is, how how do we how do we actually bring his dream and the dream of those people who walked off with him? How do we bring that to reality? Mm. Not a cattle station, but what do we do that creates positive outcomes for people in community up there now? All right, that's probably a good point mm. to end. I'm going to let you off the hook on your oh favourite story. I'm glad to hear that. I'm going to encourage. <laughs> I'm going to encourage people to, at the end of this, buy the book and, and ambush him and get him to tell you your favourite story <laughs> as, as he signs it. Um, we're going to hand back over to questions from the audience, but could you please put your hands together?